Thank you, Tracy. And thank the uh, SDPA for having me back. It's probably seven or eight years that I gave a talk. I think it was in San Francisco. And what a difference. 100, probably 125, 150 people at that meeting. And look, today is just overwhelming. Also, I'm thankful for the break. My friend and colleague, Neil Bhatia, is such a dynamic speaker. It's very hard to follow him. I'm going to have a program today that's very heavy in images, or what I would like to describe as probably image overload. And why? Because dermatology is a visual specialty. Also, I would like to think that this talk is probably going to be the most important talk of the entire session. And you might ask, why would he make a bizarre statement like that? Well, without a doubt, it's the most common entity we see in dermatology, whether it be seborrheic keratosis, atypical nevi, melanoma. And by that, it's important for us to, one, make the diagnosis, two, plan whether we biopsy, what kind of biopsy, incisional, excisional, shave. And that really has a factor on how we take care of these patients. And uh, none of us would like to miss a malignant melanoma. So with that being said, I'd like to get started. So pigmented lesions, very important topic. And why? We have a vast, vast differential diagnosis. And we're certainly not going to cover all these topics today. But again, this is in your hand up. And Dr. Habib taught me, as well as you, because he gave this lecture many years ago. He who knows seborrheic keratosis knows pigmented lesions. So what do we use? This is tools of our trade. We use good magnification. Of course, it goes without saying great lighting. Every one of our medical assistants has one of these Optilex 6X, 6X uh, magnifiers. And on occasion, we use the Dermlight 2 Pro. And mainly in my practice, I'm not a dermoscopist, but I use it to confirm that it's a seborrheic keratosis because everything else is going to get biopsied. And if I can't confirm it's a seborrheic keratosis with this, and I'll show you some clinical characteristics of that, then it gets biopsied. So seborrheic keratosis, one of the more common things we see in dermatology, benign epithelial neoplasms, variable clinical appearance with widespread distribution, size can anywhere from a half a centimeter to a couple of centimeters. It can be in varying shades of brown, black, even gray. Sometimes when these surfaces are eroded, they become pink. The surfaces could be verrucous or keratotic, or they can be smooth. And some lesions are dome-shaped with visible horn cysts, which I think is really important. And I'll show you some examples of that. They're usually well-circumscribed, described sometimes as stuck-on appearance. I'll show you examples of that. Frequently, they're multiple and oftentimes numerous requiring us to examine very closely because there may be other things, either one in association with the seborrheic keratosis or in close proximity thereof. And they may simulate melanoma or even inflamed uh, lesions could, could simulate squamous cell carcinoma. They're found on all cutaneous surfaces except the palms, the soles, and the lips. There's variants. Irritated SKs can be hemorrhagic, pyritic. They mimic and uh, they, they mimic squamous cell carcinoma. Stucco keratosis is a term we describe using uh, these white tan lesions, sometimes grayish, small on the lower legs, ankles, and feet. And dermatosis papulosa nigra, multiple skin tag-like brown 
dome-shaped pedunculated lesions, usually on the face in uh, adult black patients. And this is example, typical example of some of the patients that we have, uh, that we see in our office. And it takes just a few seconds to scan these lesions to know which one may be suspicious and which one's not. Now, in this slide, you see a little pink spot there, and that could be of concern. That's why I say we can, we can scan pretty quickly on the back, but when you see something like when you see something like this, that deserves attention of perhaps maybe even a biopsy. It could be something as simple as like, I had a lesion on the back that was irritated and this crust fell off and that could be the pink area that I described earlier. So it's an instant diagnosis based on the primary lesion, the color, the surface characteristics, and the distribution of the lesions. This is a small one on the left that's pedunculated a little bit, smooth surface. The one on the right is inflamed. They have a, a surface crust, almost verrucous. They can be fissured. Uh, in this slide, you can see it's already, most of it's already come off, and patients will tell you they'll pick these things off and they come back, though. So why do we look at these individually? Well, this is one that was a little bit suspicious, and sure enough, there was a basal cell carcinoma in a seborrhea keratosis. That's not to imply that SK is a precursor to basal cell. It's just in, it's coexistent. This is a report, it's hard perhaps to see in the back, squamous cell carcinoma in situ arising in an inflamed SK. So the point is, if it's an SK, fine, but if there's any suspicion within an SK, it probably deserves histologic examination. This is an example of an SK on the eyelid, and that was a wart right there. So two types, we talked a little bit about rough surface and smooth surface. The rough surface, and we'll just go through these quickly, uh, have a cracked, fissuring, hyperkeratotic surface. Sometimes I like to use the term cerebriform appearance, and some of our dermal nevi, which I'll share with you in a minute, look very much like that as well. Again, cracked surface, hyperkeratotic, cerebriform appearance. So the smooth ones are very, very common, and this is a typical characteristic for smooth SKs. When you lightly freeze it, you see this sort of, I call a dimpling effect. That's comedones, that you see contraction of the lesion. You see these comedone-like structures. I think that's very characteristic of a seborrheic keratosis. This one on the top left very much mimics a malignant melanoma, but the characteristics here, you can see milia-like structures, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that in just a minute. So histologically, this is the comedone-like plugs in the adnexal openings that we're seeing when we freeze these lesions. And this is the milia-like structures. And you see them in both the rough and the smooth, but they're much, more, much easier to see in the smooth, smooth surface lesions. Good example, again, milia-like structures, and you can see them here histologically. So I would ask you to look for that. That's a, that's a diagnostic clue. This is another good slide. You see milia-like structures here. Stuck-on appearance is a term we use. Milia-like structures in both of those on the left. This is one I took a picture of about a week ago. And tan in appearance and milia-like structures throughout. Very reassuring, benign seborrhea keratosis requires no further treatment. The one on the left has this the patient told me that most of this came off in the last couple of days, and that explains this uh, pink discoloration. 
This one on the right is actually on the shaft of the penis, and you can see seborrhea keratosis on a penis, but I would caution you not to just jump to that diagnosis because boanoid papulosis can look just like that, and it perhaps uh, would uh, require a biopsy, and I would encourage lesions on a penis, unless they're absolutely certain, look like seborrheic keratosis biopsy to make sure it's not boanoid, uh, boanoid papulosis. So irritated SKs not only mimic squamous cell carcinomas, but they can also mimic malignant melanoma, and I think this is a good example. All these are. The sign of lesotriot. It's a sudden appearance of numerous, sometimes hundreds, seborrheic keratosis. And it's associated usually with a, an abdominal adenocarcinoma or a malignancy. And it also can be associated with another internal uh, marker of malignancy, and that's uh, acanthosis nigricans. So just be on the lookout. Sudden onset of many seborrheic keratosis deserves further workup. These are all melanoma lookalikes and these are all benign seborrheic keratosis. And I think dermoscopy would help in all these, because you'll look for those milia-like structures. This is a patient I had that was very difficult to determine. I think we would all agree that's a seborrheic keratosis, perhaps, and maybe this over here. But the rest of this is somewhat ill-defined, with borders that are not distinct, and I biopsied this lesion three times, and all three times it came back as a seborrheic keratosis. I biopsied, excuse me, I, I biopsied here, I biopsied here, and I biopsied here. And each time, and I was sufficiently convinced after three biopsies to let it go. But the point is, is that you should never have any number in mind of biopsies. If one's not sufficient and you feel strongly that you're not certain, then biopsy a second. In this case, I personally biopsy this lesion three times, all three times seborrheic keratosis. A couple of weeks ago, we we're about 65 miles northwest of here. We had a beautiful fall, and these are some colors from the side of our home. So let's turn our attention to other pigmented lesions. I don't use the term epilid, I use the term freckle but I want to define what's a freckle and what's a lentigo. And a freckle is probably genetically determined. It's light brown to medium brown in color. It's usually seen in children. Exposed areas of the face, shoulders, outer aspects of the arm. They darken with UV light, so does lentigos, but they fade in the winter months, which lentigos do not. And it's usually hyperpigmentation of the basal layer, really without any increase in melanocytes. And this is some examples. So a lentigo, our solar lentigo, is light to dark brown, and it can be almost black, and we describe that as an ink spot lentigo when it's black. It has this little, like a, a dot of ink just dropped on the skin. You'll see that. And we reassure, once we see it, we reassure it. We usually don't biopsy that. But they're usually even colored. It can be reticulated and usually on sun-exposed skin. Can be solitary, but it's much more frequent that these are multiple lesions, usually on sun-exposed areas. And again, elongation of the reedy ridges, but there's a mild increase in the number of melanocytes. And I know we're splitting hairs here, and many times lenigos and, and uh, freckles look identical. These are examples of lentigenes. See them on the lip sometimes. 
So this is a chart from Bologna that sort of separates the two. And I'm not going to go through the entire chart, but I'd like to show you the differences. One, freckles or epholids are usually seen in early childhood. They're usually a lighter pigmentation, where solar lentigenes, lentigenes are 20 or 30-year-olds and older. Um, they fade without sun exposure. That's a big distinction with freckles versus lentigos. Now, sometimes we'll use the term lentiginous, or you may have heard the term lentiginous. It's really a pathologic term. But clinically, it means macular hyperpigmentation. But most of the time, the pathologists use this term. And it really means an increase in epidermal melanocytes. And these melanocytic proliferation is single cells, not as nest. When it's nesting, it's usually pagetoid. That's the term they use. And it's seen in solar lentigo, lentigo simplex, which is a freckle, Lentiginous junctional and compound nevus will, nevi, we'll describe that in just a minute. Lentiginous dysplastic nevi, and also in lentigo malignant melanoma. So I don't want to get you to confuse lentiginous is different than lentiginese. When we see lentigos on the lips, or sometimes you'll hear the term melanotic macule, and, and it's certainly in a child, you worry about a condition known as Pucciager syndrome. And Pucciager patients have hamartomatous intestinal polyps. They're usually benign, but adenocarcinomas have been described, and you should recommend endoscopic evaluation every two to three years. We saw this patient probably a couple of months ago, and she had the macular hyperpigmentation. You can barely see this little speckling of pigment on the anterior tongue, floor of the mouth, uh, again on the, on the uh, lower lip, and also on the lower eyelid, and she had pigmented nail streaks. And this is the Logier-Hunziger syndrome, where there is no association of hamartomatous intestinal polyps. So you can be reassured. You can send these patients for GI, but they won't usually do a workup, because that's uh, the distinction between that and Jaeger. So let's turn our attention to moles. Lots of terms, common, acquired, melanocytic nevi, synonyms, nevocellular nevus, and just common mold, which we see often. There's three different types. Junctional nevi is a brown macule, flat, with epidermal nest at the DE junction, not in the dermis. Intradermal nevus, all the nevus cells, all the melanocytes have dropped down into the dermis. There's no melanocytes at the DE junction. And the compound nevus is a combination of both. You have junctional, you have a Nevis, uh, melanocytic nevi at the DE junction and also in the dermis. I'll show you some illustrations of all three of these. This is a junctional nevus, usually flat. Again, junctional nevus. I showed this slide and we'll talk a little bit more about this. One of the more common causes of pigmented nail streak is due to a junctional nevus. Compound nevus is usually raised and you can see in this illustration nest of nevus cells at the DE junction and lots in the dermis examples of compound nevi. And this is an example of an intradermal or dermal nevus we uh, abbreviate. Again, examples of dermal nevi. This is that cerebriform appearance that we talked a little bit about with seborrheic keratosis. Sometimes they're very difficult, particularly in the scalp, to decide if it's a seborrheic keratosis versus a benign nevus. And many times we remove these because patients feel like they get irritated with a brush or a comb, particularly in the, scal in the scalp. These are all compound nevi again. Blue nevus briefly. 
Blue nevus is a localized proliferation of really dermal melanocytes. And the bluish, and it's relatively small, less than a, a, a centimeter, and it really can occur almost any time. And the reason it's blue is because of the Tyndall effect. And let me explain that. I, I really like photobiology. Matter of fact, I, I taught photobiology for, at several courses. And when you look past the ultraviolet spectrum and you're looking at visible light, you're looking at the violet and blue is on the short wavelength and orange and red being closer to the infrared is the longer wavelength of visible light. When visible light perfuses through the skin, or in this case, uh, I was flying in a helicopter over Alaska, and you might ask, why is this watercolor blue? Because if you took a glass and filled it up, it would be clear water. It's the same effect. The shorter wavelengths of violet and blue are reflected back to our eye, and we see blue. The longer wavelengths, yellow and orange and even red, diffuse deeper and are not reflected back. And so those wavelengths are canceled out, and you only see the blue. And that's the same effect with the blue nevus. That's what gives us the blue color. I pretty much described it with this uh, slide. So it's called the Tyndall phenomenon. This is also something we'll see in our practice, a labial melanocytic macule or a lentigo on the lip. And these are also seen, you may hear the term vulvar melanosis or penile melanosis. These are lentigos or melanotic macules on the vulva area or on the, on the coronal tip of the penis, usually from irritation, sometimes trauma. And there's no malignant potential here. This is just minimal increase in melanocytes. It's mostly melanin pigment. And you can reassure the patient that this isn't some diffuse melanoma. So we generally don't biopsy that. I just want you to be able to recognize vulvar melanosis and labial melanocytic macule. These are benign. And incidentally, the way I treat this is I usually have to do a light shave, you know, just a light shave excision. And on the lip, they heal well without scarring. Sometimes a light cryotherapy will work, but many times you have to actually shave excise or saucerization. Becker's nevus, I liked, I'm transitioning now into congenital pigment in nevi. This is certainly not at birth, but early adolescent, usually in males. We see a birthmark-like appearance of a lesion, usually on the chest and shoulder area. Very, very common with hypertrichosis. So, giant congenital melanocytic nevi. Fortunately, we don't see many of this, more of a bathing trunk nevus, but it's important. And, and why is it important? First of all, we have some synonyms, and we sort of have to cl clear the air on this. I call it congenital pigment of nevus. You'll find all sorts of terms in the literature. Congenital nevomelanocytic nevi, large congenital melanocytic nevi, giant pigment of nevus, giant hairy nevus, bathing trunk nevus, garment nevus are all the same. So. The question is, what defines large or giant congenital melanocytic nevi? And this is the definition. Small is less than 1.5 centimeters in an adult. Medium size, which is by far the more common we see, is anywhere from 1.5 to under 20 centimeters in adults. 20 centimeters is a, is a rather large congenital pigment of nevus. And for definition purposes, large or giant is anything over 20 centimeters. So this would be a medium size. These are all medium-sized congenital pigment of nevi. So what's the concern? Well, first of all, there is a malignant potential. But for ones that are small or medium-sized, it's extremely low over a lifetime, and very low even before puberty. But melanomas develop in approximately 5% of patients with what is considered large congenital melanocytic nevi, with half the risk 
in the first few years of life. That's an impactful statement, meaning these pediatric patients with these bathing trunk nevi need to be followed, followed carefully. Both melanoma and neurocutaneous melanocytosis are most likely in patients with large congenital melanocytic nevi that are, have a projected adult size of greater than 40 centimeters. Many have satellite nevi, and especially for the melanoma risk, it's usually truncal in location. So what do we tell our patients? The short of it, if it's a small or medium-sized congenital pigmented nevus, I tell them the only reason it needs to come off is because it's impeding their social development. If this is on the buttocks, I'll wait till the kid's old enough to tell us he wants it off. If it's on the cheek, I had one when I was a kid. It was removed at three years old, my left lower eyelid, because back in the 50s, that's what they thought. They thought there was a malignant potential. So I had a skin graft from behind my ear. We don't have to put kids through that. If they're small or medium size, reassure. If it's on the back of the hand, they're being ridiculed at school, we may consult with a plastic surgeon about when is the best time, if in fact it should be removed at all. This is an example of a nevus spilus. There's other terms for this. This is benign. It's a speckled lentiginous nevus or zostiform lentiginous nevus. So this is a really important topic that I learned for the first time probably four years ago from Jean Bologna, who I think is just a terrific mentor dermatologist and taught me a lot about what do I do with nevi. For instance, when I would get an atypical nevus back, I would always excise it, but she taught me that it's okay to do a saucerization. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But she described this concept of signature nevi. In her definition, it's the predominant group of nevi in an individual that share a similar clinical appearance. And I'll show you many examples of that because I learned a lot and I'm biopsying a lot less, particularly in the scalp of kids. This is an example that she described this as well called the cheetah phenotype, which I happen to see a couple of months ago. Guys had multiple excisions before for atypical moles. I think this gentleman even had a melanoma. This is a patient who has numerous melanocytic nevi in, in conjunction with lenigos, bringing a lot of sun damage. And you just need to recognize this, and these patients need to be followed carefully. Again, example in the literature of a cheetah phenotype. You may see that in your practice. And these are numerous small, darkly pigmented melanocytic nevi admixed with lentigenes. So her definition is something I go by, but the bottom one is something I tell my residents. We have PAs that rotate through our office. Um, we have family practice residents that come through our office as well. And this is my definition sort of off of hers. It's the common architecture and configuration of nevi in an individual that's consistent with their phenotype. And what I'm trying to say by that is if there's a pink mole on the abdomen of a patient that's a Fitzpatrick type one, meaning you got red hair and blue eyes and lots of freckles, that's probably their phenotype and that mole is probably okay for them. But if that same pink mole is in a Fitzpatrick type three, like my skin of four, that's highly unlikely and it should be biopsy. So it's gotta be consistent with their phenotype. These are examples of signature nevi. And I know three, four, five years ago, I probably would have biopsied many of these lesions. And the, be and the reason being, we're gonna to get to the ABCDs of moles in just a minute, of dysplastic nevi, but pigment is spilling out of the edges here. 
and that's okay. Some people would call this a fried egg appearance. Some people would say this is an eclipsed mole, and I'm gonna show you examples of that. But this patient had lesions that looked like this, and that were all banal or benign appearing nevi, and that's appropriate for that phenotype. Here's another example. It may be hard to see, but this I would describe as more sunburst or starburst appearance, or eclipse is another good term. And again, these were all benign nevi because this is the phenotype of this patient. More examples, starburst, sunburst, eclipse, cockade is another term we use. And what does that mean? Cockade is knots of ribbon or, or circular oval-shaped symbol of distinct colors. And you can see moles that look like that now. And particularly, this is what was a game changer for me, is that we would see moles in the scalp of kids, and no one likes to biopsy a 13-year-old, 12-year-old with these lesions. And these are classic, what she described as eclipse nevi. But 10 years ago, these were being biopsied by us, by plastic surgeons, and they were coming back benign. Or they may have mild atypia, but they really are benign lesions. So it really helped us out a lot to recognize this as a variant of normal, and we save a lot of biopsies, particularly in the scalp. And if you start looking in the scalp, you'll start seeing these ringed nevi. Another example. This was the daughter of one of my medical assistants. Again, a classic eclipse nevi. And also going on the signature nevi, sometimes you'll see some perifollicular hypopigmentation that should not be confused with variation in color within an atypical mole. This just happened to be the signature nevus of this patient, and it's certainly benign. Again, perifollicular hypopigmentation. You can see this little indentation, and if you go strictly by the criteria, the ABCDs of dysplastic nevi, now E, you'd say, well, that's an irregular border, and it needs to be biopsy, but it's not. Signature nevus has perifollicular hypopigmentation. More examples. So let's transition now to halo nevus, something we see in the office. And a halo nevus is basically a subclinical inflammatory nevus, and the inflammation usually wins, meaning it'll destroy the, it'll destroy the mold. So what do we tell patients, or what do we do in our practice? The nevus within a halo nevus has the same rules as the ABCDEs of dysplastic neva, meaning if there's anything unusual about that, it's gonna be at least biopsy, because you gotta remember, it's inflammation, and if it's a melanoma, you can see some leukoderma from a melanoma. And I think it's really important that the mole on the inside has to look benign, or it's gonna get a biopsy. And I've got some examples in here, like for instance, this one is a little suspect to me, this one's very suspect to me. That would certainly deserve a biopsy. So what's the natural history? This comes from Bologna as well, an article. This was in 2009, I believe. Most, if not all, halo nevi that start like this wind up like this, meaning a year or two later, the body repigments and there's no evidence of the mold present. However, she noticed a small subset of patients that went from, an from a halo nevus benign and repigmented with the same nevus present. I have not seen that. I usually see this progression over here on the left. Okay? So you can reassure patients and tell them that the, infl the inflammatory process, subclinically and histologically, 
is going to eventually destroy the mole, and it should be fine. Not going to spend a lot of time on this. My colleague and, uh, and friend, uh, Faraz Hujer, uh, probably talked a little bit about melanoma, so I don't want to really get into a lot. But there are some important points. We all know the ABCDs of, of uh, dysplastic nevi. What I think is this is the important slide. So what do we do? What do we do when we get a PATH report back? This is what I do, and I think this is what most of my colleagues do. So how do we manage these? This is the management. If the biopsy comes back and reveals mild dysplasia and clinically you did a shave, a shave excision or a shave saucerization, I shouldn't say excision. Jimmy Del Rosso would get on me for that. An excision is cutting with a blade through and through the skin all the way to the fat. It's a saucerization. If you get around that and it's removed by the biopsy and the PATH report reveals margins uninvolved, I firmly believe no further treatment is necessary. One more caveat. If the margin comes back and is involved and the patient is called by our office, set up for surgery and it's mild dysplasia and I look at the lesion on the back and there's no pigment, it's just a biopsy site, I won't do surgery. And I'll tell the patient, I said, look, there's a chance the pigment may repopulate, and if it does, we'll remove it then. But there's no reason, even in an, uh, in an involved biopsy site, because sometimes the biopsy creates some inflammation, and the inflammation destroys anything that's left there. That's for mild. For moderate, it's a whole different story, and worse. If the biopsy reveals moderate dysplasia or worse, whether it is involved or uninvolved, I go back and re-excise, okay? So I think that's something you can sort of go back to your practice and feel very comfortable. This is the way I do things, and it's probably over-treated on a lot of moderate dysplasia, but there's been lawsuits that patients have not had moderate dysplasia, you know, clinically it was removed by shave, and then three or four years later, misdiagnosed by a pathologist, came back melanoma, and the dermatologist or derm PAs brought into the courtroom, even though they thought they did everything right. So it's probably a little bit on the aggressive side, but I think it's appropriate. Remove whether it's involved or uninvolved, dysplastic nevi with moderate dysplasia or worse. This is the uh, lesion I showed earlier. And this is a Spitz nevus. And you might say, well, it's pigmented lesion talk. Well, no pigment is just as important as pigment. And, and if there's anything else out of this lecture, if it's a pink lesion on the skin, and we're going to get to that in a minute, you don't want to miss any melanotic melanoma. This is our specialty. This is what we do as derms and derm PAs. We need to make sure we don't miss amelanotic lesions, okay? This is a Spitz nevus, very common. These are examples. It can be, it can be dark, but most of the time they're pink. It's a benign juvenile melanoma. Very poor term. Sophie uh, Spitz back in the late 40s described this. But, and, and I'll talk a little bit about her original description in just a minute. But these are solitary lesions most commonly on the lower extremities and the face usually less than a centimeter, and that's the key here. Positive melanin due to incomplete melanization is why they're pink. And usually I recommend surgical excision when they're old enough. So what about this one? This was on the sacral region of the back in a six-year-old. It was large. This is greater than a centimeter. And this was a worrisome lesion to not only our pathologist, but this was referred out to Marty Mim. And Marty Mim put some wording in here that kind of is a little bit scary, and I'd like to read that. It says, supports the above diagnosis and states this is a spitzoid tumor now with a suggestion of vascular invasion and a high risk of metastasis. 
he would recommend re-excision as well as consideration of a sentinel node biopsy. That's pretty scary for telling a parent of a six-year-old that you have a lesion that we need to think about sentinel node biopsy. Well, as it turned out, I heard Clay Cockrell talk about this at the uh, fall clinical. These atypical spitz nevi and even regular spitz nevi have been found in lymph nodes, and their, their behavior is benign. So when they do remove lymph nodes and they find these spitzoid tumors, they're benign, and perhaps that's what Sophie Spitz was talking about, that they have a benign behavior. Uh, no one would uh, agree that something that left the skin and went to the lymph node would be benign, but nonetheless, these, these uh, nevi can track between lymphocytes, and it certainly has a benign behavior. So they don't need, other than wide excision, there's no reason to do lymph node, lymph node biopsy. This is a chart uh, from uh, the JAD that kind of separates a classic spitz nevus from an atypical. Uh, my patient happened to be six years old. It was on the back. It was greater than uh, a centimeter. Um, again, the best advice, just excision. We sent this uh, gentleman to a surgeon. They did a wider excision, probably five millimeters of margins, and that was fine. Let's uh, switch gears briefly to cancer. I'm not going to uh, overwhelm you with uh, melanoma, but I'm going to share some concepts with you that I think are appropriate. It's very common. This is a slide I got from uh, Dr. Regal. And uh, in keeping with the pigmented lesions, we sometimes see pigmented basal cells. And these are good examples. All these are patients that I took pictures of. And you can see pigment in basal cell carcinoma. So keep that in mind. These are all pigmented basals, head and neck. But I want to go and shift gears a little bit to melanoma, show you a few slides, but talk to you really about management. And why is this important? This is uh, the types of malignant melanoma. This is from Fitzpatrick's uh, book back in 1995. I think it's still appropriate. This is a good differential. Again, it's in your handout. I won't spend a lot of time on it. All examples, you know how to recognize melanoma? My staff knows how to recognize melanoma. It's really good that we're teaching our patients how to recognize melanoma because I think in 28 years of doing dermatology, we're seeing early melanoma. I'm not seeing melanoma with you know, 4.0 millimeter depth of invasion. We're seeing less than one millimeter. It's really, really important. This one actually looks a lot like a seborrheic keratosis. It was a malignant melanoma. If you do dermoscopy, this is what it looks like for malignant melanoma. And I challenge you, if you have a dermoscope, just do it. I mean, it's fun to look at that reticulated pattern. It's reassuring, and you know you're doing the right thing by doing a wide excision. Many times, we'll uh, just go ahead and schedule these patients for at least an incisional biopsy, and more than likely, and I prefer, an excisional biopsy. All examples of malignant melanoma, nodular uh, vertical growth phase, pink discoloration. Pink is almost never a normal color on the skin. That's one thing I just can't uh, tell you enough because it's going to save lives. I had a physician's uh, wife in uh, about 10 years ago, a uh, radiologist's wife, and she had what looked like a dermatofibroma. It was pink on the leg. She said, you know, she was like 40. It's only been there, you know, six months, maybe, maybe a year. So, you know, I just don't feel comfortable did the biopsy of melanotic melanoma. So pink is really, really important. These are all examples. We see them on the head and neck. We see them on the scalp. We see them on the ear. Bottom of the foot pretends more of a poor prognosis, probably because of advanced uh, diagnosis. I mean, these patients come in, and these things are pretty far gone. Lenigo maligna. 
Now this is from Dr. Regal's book, and we ask these questions, change of color, size, shape, elevation, surface characteristics, surrounding skin, sensation, consisting. I think it's really good to have your medical staff evaluate, when evaluating lesions like this to at least ask these questions that would raise your index of suspicion. So when we talk about melanoma, we talk about two things. We talk about Clark's level of invasion, and we talk about Breslow's uh, depth of invasion. And, and Clark's is one through five, and it really is the way the tumor is in, in expanding the skin, meaning if it's just a, a, a type two, it means it only fill, it's in the papillary dermis only, barely, and those are usually good prognostic lesions. But anything more than that, this is a good illustration of what I mean by tumor filling the dermis. This is what Clark described many years ago, Wally Clark. It's important, but it's not what I hang my hat on. So you'll get both. You'll get a Clark's level, and you'll get a Breslow's level. And, and the reason I don't think it's that important, because you could, have a, you could have a Breslow's level of like one millimeter and a Clark's level four because the eyelid skin is so thin. So I think a more, what I use in, in, uh, in helping me decide, map out a treatment strategy, I use Breslow's level. And Breslow's level is a measurement from the stratum granulosum to the deepest depth of the dermis where this tumor is, and it's described in millimeters. So you get 0 0.5, 0 0.75, 1, or, or greater. And I think it portends a greater uh, prognostic value. This also is from Dr. Regal. Breslow first described the significance of tumor thickness, with, which was the most important prognostic factor for all relevant outcomes. I still think that's true. Clark's level of invasion, bullet point number two, is significant, it's the most significant prognostic factor for thin lesions, meaning less than a millimeter. But it doesn't add any prognostic info to other thickness groups for the reasons I just described. I mean, you can have a Clark's level four on the lower eyelid, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. A Clark's level four on the back is really, really significant. So tumor ulceration is also a prognostic information regardless of tumor thickness, and lymphovascular invasion is not on this slide. Sometimes they'll report that, mitotic figures they'll report. We'll get into a little bit of that in just a minute. So when we stage melanoma, the, uh, the simple part, stage one, two, three, four, we normally see pages, uh, patients that are stage one and two. We certainly have patients three and four, but we, those patients come from us or we sent these patients to a surgical oncologist and they've already done the resection and we'll follow lymph node exams with them. So, but most of the patients we see diagnose and treat in our office are stage one and two. This is a little bit, this is also off the uh, Darrell Regal's book, it's in your handout. And again, we, we see and treat mostly stage 1A, 1B, and perhaps 2A, and anything more than 2A, meaning 2B, look at the size of 2B, from two to four millimeters, I used to treat a lot of that, but now because they need lymph node dissection, we refer those to the surgical oncologist. And everything beyond that, usually we refer to sur uh, surgical oncologists, and we get these patients back and we continue to follow them for a second melanoma. This is a slide that shows, it's hard to read, I know, but this is, a, again, in the patients that we see, this is 1A, 1B, and 2A. By and large, 80, almost 80% are higher. We have a five-year uh, survival rate, which is really good. Anything deeper in depth, it's just a, a poor uh, prognostic uh, value. So this one, could it be a melanoma? Absolutely. This was uh, a patient that came in, it's been present for about a year, 30-year-old, Many of us would think, well, maybe it's a pyogenic granuloma. Well, this was biopsied and it showed an amelanotic melanoma. So 
again, pink lesions, biopsy. This is an excellent website. I think you all ought to go to this. You ought to register. This gives us treatment guidelines for not only patients, but for us as providers on how to take care of almost any kind of cancer. They have Merkel cell in there. They have melanoma. They have non-melanoma skin cancer, et cetera. It's a great website, and you can register, and you can get a lot of information. It's called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And this is uh, one of the slides from the uh, cancer network. It's principles of biopsy, and I think it's important. Uh, for years, I used to do punches. I don't do a lot of punches anymore. We try to do elliptical excisions. Sometimes we'll do saucerizations. Um, and then if you are going to do an elliptical excision, you need to do this in orientation whereby if it's a deeper melanoma, which I used to think was one millimeter, perhaps could use a sentinel node biopsy. So by that, I mean if we do excisions on the proximal arm and the skin lines run horizontal and you have a melanoma, run your excision vertical so you don't disrupt the lymph, uh, lymph node mapping. So you got to keep that in mind if you're going to do an elliptical excision. So the orientation Again, bullet point two should be planned with definitive wide excision in mind and perhaps a lymph node dissection. Prefer a full thickness incision or punch biopsy. In certain anatomic areas, you can't do a full excision, so a punch biopsy is certainly appropriate. And the last bullet point is important because for years we used to say, you know, you should never do a shave, but sometimes a shave, when it's not an intended or the index of suspicion is low, is fine. I mean, you can get by with a shave. It's not. It's gonna. It's gonna probably mess up the Breslow's thickness. But you know, if a shave biopsy makes the diagnosis, the patient gets treatment. So be it. That's not probably the best way to do that, but it's certainly okay to do it. So this is a patient that came in in her 70s, and I knew this was. This is her uh, eyebrow here. I knew this was a melanoma uh, right away. So. Uh, you know, you can do almost anything. You can do a punch biopsy from the vertical growth phase, but, but why? I mean, so I went ahead and we did, a, we did an excision. I did actually five millimeter margins. They require only two to three. And we gave the pathologist the full tissue. This was probably a, a 0.4, I mean 4.0 Breslow's level. So this one was going to be referred to surgical oncology for a lymph node, a sentinel lympho biopsy. So that's the question. Sentinel lymph node biopsy. What do we tell our patients? You know, we're the ringleaders here. We're the ones that see our patients to these surgical oncologists. So you really need to know what to tell your patients. And I think this is an incredibly important topic. So before these guidelines came out this past February, I just arbitrarily, and many of my colleagues did the same, if you had a melanoma with a Breslow's level of one millimeter or greater, we would at least consider a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And, and, and like I said, many times it, would, it was offered. Certainly the higher the number, they would definitely get it. But this is the most recent guidelines, and let's walk through it because I think it's really important. If it's in situ, wide excision. It's all you need, five millimeter margin. No sentinel lymph node biopsy. If it's less than 7.5 millimeters, the evidence would suggest you do not need to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Wide excision is all that's necessary. This is where it gets a little tricky. We've lowered the bar a little bit. The one millimeter is not the number anymore. It's 0.76 to one, but there's gotta be some criteria involved in that. If there's no ulceration and a mitotic rate is less than one, then wide excision is appropriate. You can consider lymph node biopsy, 
but it's probably not going to happen with the surgical oncologists. They tend not to do it at that. Unless there's other factors, but it's pretty unlikely a 0.76 melanoma would have lymphovascular invasion. But it's possible. If that happens, it's definitely a sentinel lymph node biopsy. However, if there's ulceration and or the mitotic rate is greater than one on that report, then you're not only going to recommend wide excision, but you will offer sentinel lymph node biopsy, and the surgical oncologist will certainly proceed in that direction. And if it's greater than one now, we recommend wide excision, and we offer sentinel lymph node biopsy. About an hour and a half ago, my surgical nurse texted me, we have a melanoma on the, on the shoulder, 3.4 millimeter depth, do you want to do it? The answer is no. We send that to, and I used to do that, and then send them for the biopsy, but you know what? I'd rather them see the lesion and do the excision and do the sentinel node as one treatment. I mean, you're saving the patient going through multiple procedures. So this is just nice guidelines to remember. And again, it's in your handout. So this is what you get out of this website. And I'm not going to go through all this because I got it summarized. If you look at stage zero, it'll tell you what to do. Stage 1A, you know, these are things that we see. And you can go to this website and just plug in the numbers, and you can ex see exactly the workup and what needs to be done. So this is sort of, in a, in a second, I'll show you the summary of that. This is how we treat melanoma. Basically, if it's, less than a, if it's less than a millimeter, they get a centimeter margin. Anything greater than a millimeter, they usually get two centimeter margins. And we do that in the office without uh, hesitation. So the common follow-up recommendation, this came from that previous slide, at least complete annual skin exams for life. Educate your patients in monthly self-exam. The monthly self-exam, uh, monthly self-lymph node exam for stage 1A to 4. Teach your patients how to feel or palpate for nodes. Now, imaging, uh, blood tests are not recommended. That's kind of new. Imaging is not really recommended either, unless you're investigating specific signs or symptoms. That's a real key uh, point. Five years ago, I was getting PET scans on everybody. I was getting PET CTs. You don't need to do that. If you're looking for something, there's a node, you may want to do ultrasound first, and you don't have to do a lot of this workup. I'm just trying to tell you what you can recommend to patients, what is the appropriate workup. Ultrasound certainly a viable alternative if you're trying to evaluate a lymph node, and then obviously you can do imaging studies to evaluate a specific sign or symptom. And then follow-up schedule is uh, influenced by the following, the risk of recurrence, based on the depth of invasion, prior primary melanomas, family history melanoma, and other factors which include atypical or dysplastic nevi, and of course, most importantly, patient and physician concerns. Again, this is how we do it in our office. If you have an in situ lesion, they get seen every six months, the first year, and then yearly. A less than a millimeter in depth, they're gonna get every six months, at least every six months for the first three years and every 12 months. And I'm a little bit more aggressive with this because when they have a melanoma, I really do every three to, three to six months and it's more likely every three because I really want to make sure that they don't get a second melanoma. So let me turn our attention to what I think is one of the most difficult things as us as providers to deal with in our office when patients come in what melanonychia striate or longitudinal melanonychia. And why is that? I mean, we see it, and the reason it's difficult because it's not easy to biopsy the proximal nail fold. If you've tried it, it's just not an easy venture. One, you have to remove the nail plate. 
Two, you have to retract or fold back the proximal nail fold. Then you have to take some instrument and try to at least get where you think the biopsy needs to be. And then you either have to repair that, and it's just the tissue's tight, it's bound down. We tend to refer these patients to hand surgeons. It's difficult biopsy to get. And, uh, but anyway, I want to give you some guidelines because this is one of these diseases, or, or conditions rather, that just has really never been defined for me very well. It's just hard. I mean, everybody knows what Hutchinson's freckle is, and everyone knows the potential danger of that and, and, and the requirement for removal. But I want to give you some guidelines on how to deal with patients with this disorder. So we all see it, and of course, this is the Hutchinson sign when it involves pigmentation of the proximal nail fold or cuticle. And of course, that pretends the diagnosis of malignant melanoma of the, of the nail, nail bed. And that's a, that's a potentially dangerous melanoma. It's going to probably require at least uh, amputation and probably, a, and, and more than likely, a ray amputation. So I searched the literature and I came up with some good articles that I think, and this is not in the syllabus that you have now, but it's on the website. I encourage you to look at this article because it's going to help you navigate these patients. So. I'm just going to leave this up for a second. We're not going to go through it all, but this is the most frequent causes for longitudinal melanonychia. So, subungual melanoma is a relatively rare disease, and it's only reported with an incidence of anywhere from 0.7 to 3.5 of all melanoma cases in the general population. Again, this is an article from the JAD. So, this is a a busy slide, and I tell you this was an image-heavy talk, but this is probably the busiest slide on this. And I'm going to walk you through this, and of course you can access this through this article, but it's an important slide nonetheless to give you some comfort on when you should biopsy these lesions. So what lesions should be biopsied? Isolated pigmented band on a single digit that develops during the fourth to sixth decade, and then I'll show you a chart that says fifth to seventh in just a minute. So older patients, number one. Nail pigmentation that develops abruptly in a previously normal nail plate. Pigmentation that suddenly becomes darker or larger when the pigment becomes blurred near the nail matrix. Acquired pigmentation of the thumb, index finger, or large toe. Pigment that develops after a history of trauma in which the subungual hematoma has been ruled out. That's probably the most common thing we see. And I'll take the nail plate off and sure enough, every, the nail bed is perfectly normal. And sometimes I'll send the plate in to the pathologist and have them do stains and make sure that's blood. I've done that for many professional people that just were just nervous and want to make sure there was nothing there. So that's something you can certainly do. Take the nail plate off, send it in, have them do stains for blood. Um, any acquired lesion in patients with a personal history of melanoma. If the pigment, pigmentation is associated with nail dystrophy, including partial nail destruction or absence of the nail plate. And of course, the last one we all know, if pigmentation of the periungal skin, including the lateral nail fold, is found to be present or Hutchinson sign, this includes pigment of the cuticle or hyponychium. And again, this is found in our article. It just gives you a comfort level or just some bullet points to, to go through if you're trying to decide if this should be biopsied. So, longitudinal melanonychia, what is it? Well, the most common histologic diagnosis in adults is probably benign melanotic macule. In children, it's probably a junctional nevus. And again, that was in an article. So this is a patient we saw th uh, three years ago. And of course, he had lots of pigment in his nail plate, but he had this ulceration. And 
the ulcer, this came back as a malignant melanoma and required amputation, partial amputation. And he, and he was followed up uh, within the last month or two and still doing well. We do a lymph node exam on him. And fortunately, uh, he's had an outcome at least that's very good over the last three years. This is another article, rather the same article earlier from the, uh, the JAD of 2000. And, and it kind of uh, summarizes the alphabet, like we use ABCDEs of dysplastic nevi, of nail melanoma. And I think it's important to at least go over some of these features. Again, the age being A, anywhere from the fifth to seventh decade is the most important. A also being race, African American, or A Native American, or Asian. Those are more common uh, in, in that population. B is, means nail band, and it's mainly brown black pigment and breadth greater than three millimeters. I think that's important. Greater than three millimeters is certainly important. And the border being blurred or irregular. C is a change, rapid increase in size or growth, or lack of change, failure of a nail dystrophy to improve despite adequate treatment. D, digit involved thumb, hallux, index finger, single digit, multiple digits on a dominant hand. E is extension, extension of the pigment to the lateral fold. We talked about that, Hutchinson sign or free edges of the nail plate, and F being family or personal history of previous melanoma dysplastic nevus syndrome. It's just a nice chart to go back and review if you're struggling with the fact, should this be biopsied or not. This is the last diagnosis, and I think it's an important, it's an important diagnosis for a lot of reasons. When I was a resident, uh, and, I, and I was a resident in Louisiana, I grew up in New Orleans, we used to see a lot of people coming off of ships, Vietnamese, Philippines, whatever. They used to work, and we'd see lots of pigmented lesions. And back when I was a resident back in the uh, early 80s, we'd also see some of these lesions excised, meaning big palmar lesions, thinking it was a lenigo malignant on the palm. So the point is that this is a disease, once you see this, and there's probably many people in this audience that have seen this disease, uh, once you see it one time, you'll remember forever, and you'll be able to treat the patient appropriately. Any thoughts on this disease? Anybody want to tell me what this is? Excellent. Tinea, you do a scraping. Now, let me give you a little history. Georgia is about, is in Athens, University of Georgia. This was a 21-year-old female, went on a family vacation to the Caribbean in June. In September, she came in with, and saw Claire, uh, one of our physician assistants, and we immediately did a scraping, and this is the scraping right here. It's just really a nice diagnosis to know, one, how to diagnose, and two, how to treat, because the treatment is this. It's first of all, tinea nigra palmaris. You see it usually on the fingers or the palms of the hand. It's not a melanocytic lesion at all. It's a superficial phaohyphomycosis, usually H. Wernicke. It's usually seen in humid tropical climates. It's a 10 to 15 day incubation. It's found in soil, sewage, and damp showers. This is an important slide also. And the reason it's important is the most important part on this slide is this. Griseofulvin is ineffective. We treat tinnias with griseofulvin sometimes. I don't do it much. I think griseofulvin is best treated for kids with tinea capitis only. I don't use it much otherwise in our practice. But almost any other treatment you can use topically, including superficial abrasion, is appropriate to treat this condition. Now, on the bottom of the foot is one of the few times we'll allow the pigment to 
spread within the dermal crease of the, the creases of the skin that kind of look a little bit unusual. So the ABCDs don't quite apply on that in pressure areas around the waist. Sometimes you'll see a little bit of spilling of the pigment outside of the nevus, and this is, uh, that's really okay. This was a junctional nevus. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it.